0: The judgmental mind is given too much credit in our whole culture. What you're supposed to be more than anything else is smart. If anything goes wrong, it's your fault. Well, it's not a matter of placing fault. It's a matter of taking responsibility.
1: Hello and welcome, fellow human. My name is Zachary Stockhill, and you are listening to Humans in Love, a podcast that looks at culture, relationships, and personal development from unconventional perspectives. Join me as I dig into the question of how people like you and I might get more out of life and love. Thanks for being here. Hello and happy Tuesday. Dear listener, thank you for joining me for another installment of Humans in Love, and my two guests today will be no stranger to you if you've been listening for a while. Dr. Brad Blanton is a psychotherapist and the author of the self-help classic, Radical Honesty. He was featured in episode two. And his daughter, Carsi Blanton, is a very fine singer-songwriter entrepreneur who is featured in, I want to say, episode six. <laughs> I probably should have looked that up before I recorded this intro, but I think it's episode six. Anyway, you'll find it if you go through the, the history. Brad and I reconnected by email not long ago, actually in the days following Anthony Bourdain's suicide. I think both of us were trying to figure out what the hell happened and how some good perhaps might come out of this horrible tragedy. And what we came up with was to record another podcast in which we would talk about suicide and depression and human connection and radical honesty and how we might go about either staving off depression, uh, helping others who are going through depression, and just how we can foster greater community and connection among the people around us. Thankfully, uh, Brad's daughter, Carsey, was also interested in sharing that conversation with us. So last night, actually, we hopped on Skype and we talked about a whole lot of things. We talked about Bourdain's death. We talked about suicide in general. We talked about depression. We talked about uh, human connection and how we can have stronger connections with the people around us. We talked about the importance of physical touch. We covered a lot of ground in this conversation. And I think it's fair to say that this conversation involved a lot of serious subject matter, but as in my conversation, my first conversation with Brad and Carsey, we also laughed a whole lot. And, you know, these are very interesting, very insightful people. I got a lot out of this conversation. I'm still feeling good from it (laughs) this morning as I record this intro, and I think you'll get a lot out of it too. So I really hope you stick around and listen to my new conversation with Dr. Brad Blanton and Carsey Blanton. A quick note before we get started that if you're enjoying Humans in Love and you'd like me to continue doing this, please take 22 seconds approximately out of your day. Go to iTunes or your podcast provider of choice Be sure you subscribe to the show and leave a rating and a review. And another quick note before we get started, there was a couple of connection issues at some point during the call, um, but for the most part, I think it's okay. And you won't hear Carsey until around, I think 20 to 25 minutes toward the end of our call. Unfortunately, uh, it's tough to coordinate three different time zones and Skype schedules and all the rest, so she couldn't join us until the end. But stick around and you'll hear her towards the end of our call. Without any further ado, I present to you Dr. Brad Blanton and Carsey Blanton. Well, Dr. Blanton, welcome back to uh, Humans in Love. You're my first repeat guest. Congratulations.
0: Oh, thank you.
1: Um, yeah, so I guess we should start with uh, the main reason um, we're talking today. We connected by email shortly after Anthony Bourdain uh, took his life, and I think it, it had a big impact on both of us. Perhaps I'll, I'll just say a couple of words. I mean, there's been so much written and so many people have commented on this already, but I'll just say a couple of words about what he what what impact that had on me and then perhaps you can speak and uh to the same to the same thing um yeah i mean i i think just for me very briefly anthony bourdain is a big reason why i'm standing in this room in northern thailand talking to you today i mean he was one of the main reasons i started traveling i really liked the way he traveled I'm, i'm sure you're familiar with with his show and stuff and you know, he was a big, he was a big influence on, on my life. And I, I liked the way he appeared to live his life. He's a hell of a good writer. I don't I'm not sure if you've read Kitchen Confidential, his first book. It's a really fun read. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty great book. And, um, yeah, his death really messed me up. It, you know, from the outside looking in, this might sound naive, but It'd be tough to imagine someone with a better-looking life, right, from the outside looking in. I mean, the guy had millions of dollars, a beautiful girlfriend, a beautiful daughter, probably the coolest job in the world. I mean, the list goes on. And I was in a real funk for a few days. And, um, I mean, you told me that you kind of you kind of felt the same. I mean, what, what did his death mean to you?
0: Well, it was depressing. It was like a fellow sort of avant-garde, risk taker who says what he thought basically was not too offensive to people, but he wasn't careful not to offend such that he was like sucking up to anybody. And if he disagreed, he disagreed. He was a straightforward guy. And I thought he was, he seemed to be pretty happy and his laughter seemed authentic and that he killed himself when he's 61 years old just didn't fit anything about my a picture of him, or my inspiration by him, uh, and it was depressing. I was depressing myself for a week or two there, but a similar thing happened whenever Leonard Cohen and lot of. There are several instances of people that that had that life that you just talked about. No reason, but uh, basically they took themselves out anyway. They have the right to. I don't doubt that. And, and for many, many years, I've been using a model of human development called the Sufi levels of confidence. Of, of the Sufi levels of, of consciousness start at the level of belief, which is the lowest level of consciousness there is. And they go all the way to the level of complete reunion with God is the top of it. And on the way through, about two-thirds of the way through, is a place called Suicidal Panic. (laughs) And at that place, you can choose to either exit or not exit. And on the other side of that is called the Here and Now. It's the place right in front of the Here and Now. It's where either the ego dies or the person dies. And I've always thought of that model as one that gives you permission to go ahead and be in despair. Go ahead and be desperate. Go ahead and be judgmental of yourself and suffer from your expectations. And then persist beyond that, and you discover all of a sudden a brand new, welcoming moment. But the the right of people to take their own lives is not what's at hand, it's that they do it in spite of the quality of their lives. And it's, in, it's the larger eight hundred thousand people killed themselves in twenty twelve. It was more than those killed by war or by crime. And so more people are dying from from suicide than from war. And only people the beat that are people that die from sugar. Like diabetes kills one point five million people. So it's like basically a kind of a depressing statistic, don't you think?
1: To say the least. It's yeah. a
0: it's Yeah. It's like what can you do? Um there uh uh have heard stories of suicide where people i thought just took just did it just a little too early <laughs> and i don't know it's almost like accidental i think about it a lot because i'm i'll soon be 78 years old if i get a terminal illness i may kill myself or i may get do something experimental that kills me and i'm not as scared as i used to be but the the idea of exiting consciously and on purpose is not a bad idea or a negative idea to me. It's just possible. But someone like Anthony Bourdain, with all those advantages you had, went ahead and said, Okay, this is life. This is the way life is. I've had a good life. This is the best life has to offer. I'm loved and I'm taken care of and I've well off and I have an entertainment and everything like that and I've had enough. Thank you. Goodbye. It's possible. It's just still depressing to those of us that haven't chosen that.
1: Yeah, to say the least. And and I think what you just described, to, uh, to the best of my knowledge, fits pretty well with how the writer Hunter S. Thompson ended his life back in 20, 2005, I think, Um there's a there's a wonderful documentary on Hunter Thompson called Gonzo, where his family actually talks about that that they were all together, um, and he wasn't sick or anything. He was just kind of, you know, by all accounts, he was ready to check out, uh, and he, you know, walked outside and and killed himself. And as a fan of Hunter S. Thompson, I mean, I guess I'll, I'll I'm going to be radically honest with you, and you you just tell me tell me what you think. I I had two thoughts when he killed himself that I wasn't. Necessarily that proud of, but they were there nonetheless. When you say someone has the right to take their life, I remember very clearly. I got really into. Um, do you know Alan Watts, the um, famous mystic speaker? Yeah, I became kind of obsessed with Alan Watts maybe six, seven, eight years ago, something like that. And I just devoured everything, everything he re- wrote and everything he he said. And uh, there's one of his lectures where he talks about. Yeah, oh, I mean. I did
0: that a few years ago. <laughs> beg your pardon. I did that about sixty years
1: ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you have seniority. Yeah, you've got a little time on me. Yeah, but he, uh, he, he had this lecture where he said, basically, that he, if someone comes to him saying uh, that they have suicidal thoughts, he would often say, "Well, you have permission to do that. It's a really bad idea, but it's your life, and you have permission." And he said that often. I mean, just about. Well, he actually he said exclusively when he would tell people that they didn't kill themselves. There's something. I don't know comforting about having that permission but when i think about i mean i'm not a father you are a father i think about i so the two thoughts i had one was i thought okay he has that right but my god doesn't he owe something to that little human being that was the first thought the second thought i had was how dare you i'm sure you've lost people i lost two loved ones uh, within the past year who would have killed to have more time on this rock with us you know they would have just killed to have more life and and yeah i'm not saying it's 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 justified or right um but i had those two thoughts it was like i was pissed off for 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 various reasons and and i've never had a like a friend or a loved one commit suicide but i can only imagine if you're close to someone who does that it must be very confusing there must be a lot of different emotions and questions and thoughts that come up do you have any experience with that or
0: well, uh, in regular grieving process, one of the things when grieving just won't stop, people can't get over it for two years and they're still grieving someone that was that died and they can't get over it, the processing that's usually necessary is for them to admit their anger at the person for, who died, and that's also for people who killed themselves. That is, when someone dies... It's sometimes even if it's not their fault that they died, you still get damn mad at them for dying. They were in your life; they left you. How dare you abandon me? Now that doesn't sound like a kind thought, but it's there, <laughs> and I resent you for dying. It has to be spoken, and when it does, often underneath, immediately underneath that expression of resentment, is a grieving that could not be accessed until the resentment was expressed. And then when they sob, they sob going all the way to their knees, and standing all the way on their tiptoes, they go all the way into the experience of the grief. And when you experience an experience, it can come and go. But when you stand in resistance to it, it persists for as long as you're resisting. Because resistance causes persistence, so some way, you have to, as we did. You and I spent a couple of weeks being depressed there when Anthony Bourdain killed himself. But I was mad at him for doing that, and I. But I knew that I was mad at him for doing that. So fuck you for killing yourself, <laughs> and I resent you for going away, and I resent you for this like this surprise. And there the problem is there's nothing you can do to process things except to feel what you feel and to have them be there. What you feel or think is doesn't have any application to prevent what it is that's already happened and you have to acknowledge some helplessness. And so there's always some helplessness and always some anger and always some grief, all of which have to be experienced, not just the one thing of the grief that is permissible.
1: Yeah. And, and, and you raise a really important point. And as I'm listening to you, I realize like the, the people I lost over the past year, um, there's a part of me that's angry at them, too. You know what I mean? I, I guess that, you know, it's not like I'm just mad at Anthony Bourdain because he ch- took his own life. I'm angry at people I like, <laughs> whether I know them or whether I don't leaving us. Yeah. And and so maybe it's not even just a suicide specific anger. You know what I mean? Maybe it's just, as you say, just a part of the grieving process. I think that that makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah. Also, you know, John Bryan's one of my favorite singers and John Bryan has a song about God, that if you believe in God, you have to get mad at him. (laughs) (laughs) He says. uh, he said the song is Father forgive us for what we must do. You forgive us and we'll forgive you. We'll forgive each other until we both turn blue, then we'll whistle and go fishing in heaven.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: like God needs our forgiveness too, whenever someone's taken away. And so it's like there is Forgiveness is a process of getting over shit. I have a course online called "Getting How to Get Over Shit and Be Happy. And it has to do with the process of forgiveness, being the experience of the experience. But it took me a long time to get over Anthony Bourdain and and, uh, and a few other people like the ones that you mentioned. And I think, too, how could you do that? You had a daughter who was young, still not completely grown up. Like The thing is... Um we're all, you know, I, I feel terrible about uh, my kids that I'll abandon when I die, but it doesn't make any difference. The only thing you can do is go ahead and feel terrible about it so far. I actually have a contract to have, to be frozen when I die, to be brought back whenever they can uh, bring people back to life. Just because I had an insurance policy to do that with, I think I'll do that and come back and see what the world looks like if it still is, and then commit suicide. <laughs> you know what? That
1: that doesn't surprise me whatsoever. I think, I, like knowing what I know about you and reading your books and stuff, that that seems to make a lot of sense. Yeah. So maybe I'll see you again in seventy years or something. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. I I, I I want. Yeah, I want to underline though another really important point you make that that. Is So important is whether you believe in God or not, whatever God means to you, forgiving God, forgiving the universe for taking that person. That's something that I'm still really struggling with. You know, like, I feel like I can forgive a lot, but that's for me in the grieving process. That's the biggest one. Like, even though I don't, I mean, I don't believe in God, the father, the creator, you know, my idea of God's a little different, but just, you know, forgiving the universe, if you want to call it that, that's a tough one. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: I'll say it is and
1: necessary i think yeah absolutely have you uh have you ever dealt with like a serious depression i mean i i've been depressed but i haven't dealt with anything like suicidal thoughts or tendencies or clinical depression have you had any experience of that
0: I've thought occasionally about suicide over the course of my life at different times, but never seriously, never actually, knock on wood, had anyone in therapy with me commit suicide. I've had people that had been in therapy with me killed themselves later when they were in therapy with another therapist. But it was like a lot of suicide seems to me be like, basically, oh, you did it just for that? Yeah. (laughs) You know, a lot of when people are depressed, I do very effective therapy with them generally as therapists go because I try to give them an upgrade to utter despair. They tell me, I say, well, what are you you depressed about? And they tell me and I say, well, shit, that's nothing. What you ought to think about The meaninglessness of your life, the fact that you don't have any money and you're going to die, and your kids hate you, and your ex wife won't even speak to you, and you've got a sucky job. There's a lot of really bad things worse than that. You know, life is meaningless. <laughs> and I go on explaining to them the existential travesty that life is. And they that sounds like fun. Say,
1: <laughs> but.
0: I say you need an upgrade. Depression is just some kind of a dipshit little old thing, but despair now is worth having. <laughs> and so by the time I give them the upgrade, they're usually laughing about it because they're what they're laughing about is that there are worse things than what they were got to what they were depressed about. And it often has something to do with defiance in the face of that sadness.
1: What what kind like, of questions do you ask them? Like like if you're dealing with with a patient who is talking about depression, like what 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 are you trying to get at there? I'm really curious about that. Like what do you what do you ask them?
0: Well, how do they? What I'm mostly interested in is what expectations are they attached to that they're disappointed in not getting. So everyone has their own particular preferred set of the uh, top dog bottom dog game we call it in Gestalt work which is basically self-criticism and trying to drive and make themselves do things and then judging themselves for not doing it well enough and being either too flamboyant or too careful and trying to accomplish something and then being really hard on themselves about how bad it was that they didn't succeed as though there's a virtue in that and of course we can co most of the people we knew grew up as Judeo Christian tradition people who are moralists, who are judgmental, like the whole Judeo Christian tradition is not the best religious tradition you can have, you know. <laughs> There's seven or eight more that are a little better.
1: <laughs>
0: there is so much virtue attached to virtue so much meaningfulness attached to doing right being right and not being wrong and uh, if you get to where you can say oh well I was wrong and that's about it then you've gotten somewhere so often what I do is mock them I mock them oh poor little thing (laughs) your little (laughs) your little heart was hurt by your husband was mean to you this morning. Poor Widow Faye. <laughs> and they, they said, kiss my ass. I'm gonna hate you. I'm quitting. And then I said, there you go. There's a little bit of anger in there, in there? <laughs> and there almost always is. The main element of depression is anger. Anger. Usually it's bigger than sadness.
1: Anger about their inability to meet the expectations of others or what
0: your own expectations and Mm -hmm. the expectations like they expect to meet certain other people's expectations and so they've got their own expectations about doing that that's what they're doing this
1: is this is really interesting to me could you give me some examples about some things that that they'd say like what kind of expectations well
0: People have all kinds of hopefulness and desire for accomplishment, things like that. Anything. You could say, I want to get my master's degree in one year from my bachelor's degree, and it's been three years, and I don't have it yet, and I'm depressed. And then I say to them, how are you depressing yourself? They say, what do you mean? And I say, well, don't you see that you're the one who has the attachment to the expectations? You're the one who wants that. You're the one who thinks it's important. You're the one who must have it in order to be happy. And you are the source of creation of all that. And they say, no. (laughs) And I say, well, you are. So you're being hard on yourself. You think it's a virtue. I think it's stupid. And they said, "Well, I think you're stupid." I said, "Yeah, come on, let's we'll have a little more of that." <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where they would kill them. They'd themselves. The great progress—they'd
1: <laughs> rather kill you.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. I, when I came into the session, I was going to kill myself. Now I'm going to kill you. That's good. That's a good session. I'm to charge you down.
1: <laughs> so. So I, I can imagine some people listening to this are hearing you and saying, and who are not therapists and who are not psychologists or not psychotherapists, aren't you playing kind of a dangerous game there? Like this is this is really interesting to me that you feel like someone's coming to you with depression because I think of depression as utterly serious in some ways and, and delicate and perhaps that's misguided but that's that's my perception but you're not afraid to, to sort of poke them and prod them a little bit I, th- I find that really interesting
0: yeah although uh, when people are really depressed I feel sorry for them I don't want them to hurt like that and I will say things that are so sad but I like sadness better than depression because depression is too like intellectually abstract and complex, but when someone says sad and I say, what are you sad about? They can name what occurred in their life that they were wanting, that they didn't get, or that they lost. And I can identify with that, but often I had a I had a, a, a lot of therapy myself. I came from a broken home and left when I was 13 in a lot of trouble, so I had about 20 years of therapy, but <laughs> one of my therapists once when I was, um, I don't know, about your age or younger, I was sort of whining and complaining about things, and I said, oh, never mind, I was just feeling sorry for myself, and she reached over and touched me on the shoulder, and she said, that's okay, you had some hard times go ahead and feel sorry for yourself and yeah. i just cried and cried and cried i just cried my heart out i just cried i couldn't stop crying no one had ever told me that before That it was okay to feel sorry for myself and some bad things had happened and i did feel sorry for myself and ever since then i haven't felt as sorry for myself because it's okay if i do So it's a kind of permission to not be so moralistically self-righteous with standards that you suffer your way through continuous, repeated self-torture. But that you get that it's just you doing this to you because you're an egomaniac about being right and being perfect. It's so virtuous to be an egomaniac about righteousness. It turns you from Jesus to Donald Trump, who's a bad
1: it's a, j- <laughs> it's a bit of a jump. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is this is cutting a little too close to the bone I have to say because one thing I struggle with is uh I guess I'm just I'm afraid of of anyone perceiving me as uh being self-pitying. I'm generally, you know, I'm very conscious of that. I never want to be perceived as having self-pity. But you're right, I think there are moments when it's nice just to sort of let down and say, you know what, this really sucks, <laughs> and I'm really sad, and I've had a, you know, I've had a shitty time of it lately, or whatever. You know, there is something liberating about that. I struggle with that, and I think a lot of men do, um, and women. But yeah, I wonder if there's a masculine component to that. Like, are we more prone to, uh, yeah?
0: You're supposed to not whine or 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 <laughs> bitch or feel about it. You're supposed to be tough. You know, more men are supposed to be tough more than women are supposed to be tough. Although depends on which one you see today. She might kick your ass just for acting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, it's, but I understand that. Yeah, I'm doing it. the I'm The top dog, bottom dog game is where the aspect of yourself that is the judgmental moralist says you should make sure you go up at eight o'clock in the morning and go and work out before you go to work. And the bottom dog then responds, yes, I should. I certainly should. And I'm going to. And then the top dog says, well, you didn't yesterday, and you said you are going to then. No, I didn't. That was bad. I'm going to tomorrow, though. And so the game goes on as though the top dog has authority, but the one who always wins is the bottom dog, hmm. because the bottom dog undermines by agreeing and just not doing it anyway, Agreeing and rebelling. So it's all a bullshit game. You know, the truth is exercise or you yeah (laughs) and if you you can figure out a way to prefer it then instead of thinking that you should thinking that you should is powerless and trying to do what you should is also powerless so if you stop thinking and trying you might say huh, I'd like to go run for a little bit and you go run or you go exercise because you do feel good during and after exercise so that you then it may some of it may hurt a little bit and that may feel good to hurt a little bit. The point is that if a preference is stronger than an obligation, then you're better living your life according to preferences than you are according to obligations. And it is true that preferences are a hell of a lot more fun than obligations.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That that's a crucial reframing. And and in my own life with exercise, that's, that's a crucial reframing. I'm standing here smiling at you because I'm realized like that's such a brilliant way of framing it because there's a weird sense of satisfaction you get if you're supposed to do something and you don't do it, but you beat yourself up for it because then you think, well, okay, I didn't do what I wanted to do, but you know, I'm, I'm holding myself to account. I'm not happy about what I'm doing. Right. It's like, you still feel sort of, there's a perverse sense of, uh, not accomplishment, but it's like, yeah, you're like let You're not letting yourself get away with it. So, you know, it's okay kind of thing. It's, it's That's a great way of framing it. Yeah. Very interesting.
0: I think, so. I think maybe, you know, because you, moralists can turn anything into moral righteousness. And I think that that might be one of the things that could have happened with Anthony Bourdain, was that he became a kind of a 12-year pioneer with that television show about showing people how to go about living the carefree, less than moral life, but it became a moral thing. He he was doing it in service because he should. And he was doing it more than he wanted to because it was his success that he should continue to do. And I know a little bit about that because you know, I've been saying I've been trying to retire for like 10 years, but I love what I do. And I always say, well, these people maybe going go do this. <laughs> <laughs> That's just a bullshit story of mine. I'm still kind of a self-righteous jerk about being the true inventor of radical honesty. And so what happens is that you can turn anything into moralism, even like you should have sex often. You should make yourself have sex whether you want to or not. You're still going to have sex but you're doing it because you should, it's not going to probably be as much fun as if you're doing it because you prefer. Or whatever it is, eating, any pleasure that you have, if you're making yourself do it, you're you're ruining it. With the morality, the moralism, I call moralism a disease. of thinking that being right and not being wrong is more important than anything else. It's not. And so you can turn anything into a moralistic thing. And uh, you who know, would smoke and drink and party and travel and do all those things as an example to all of us who admired him for it. And it could have become a moral internal structure of his that he just got sick of. And I don't know. I would have liked to have talked to him about that. That's another thing that happens to me. And there's a uh, shit I wish I would have been I, did, I had no expectation of this occurring. I had not a glimmer of this. Mm. I had no idea he was in any way contemplating killing himself or unhappy. And I should have known that, I think. There I go, being moralistic about I'm supposed to be sensitive. See? <laughs> so it's, you have to constantly interrupt your judgmental mind and recognize that. Being smart may not be the most important thing in the world. That's the one example that I ran this eight day long workshop for about 15 years called The Course in Honesty. And about 10 years into it, we found a chant. We discovered a chant that leads to enlightenment. I told you about this before. Uh, <laughs> Because getting dumber is more important than getting smarter, and it so flies in the face of what we've all been taught. You know, you're supposed to get smarter and smarter. But the smartest thing is to get dumber. Just, "Uh, I don't know. What I want? Uh, I want this. Go get that. I want to get a Pepsi. Get a Pepsi. It may be better than being a health food nut who's a self-righteous moralist who starves himself to
1: death. I'd love it if you could unpack that a little more. I know this is a big topic, but the idea of getting dumber rather than smarter, because particularly if someone's not familiar with their work, they might listen to that and say, what the hell is this guy talking about? Could you try to unpack that just a little bit? uh no (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to
0: (laughs) well you know this is coming from a guy that's written seven books so so if I I was any good at it (laughs) I I, I might not have written so many damn books (laughs) but uh the, the idea is that the The judgmental mind is given too much credit in our whole culture. What you're supposed to be more than anything else is smart. You're supposed to not make any mistakes. You're supposed to be able to be in charge. You're fully responsible and you're to blame for anything that goes wrong and all that stuff. And eventually, if if, if, if anything goes wrong, it's your fault. Well, it's not a matter of placing fault. It's a matter of taking responsibility. And I I think I am responsible for my life, and whatever I create is my creation. So if I create some dilemma in a relationship to another person, I participated in the creation of that. And so if I take responsibility for being the creator of my life, then I find that I do a better job when I'm paying more attention to what's going on with you when I'm watching you and listening to you and what's going on inside my own body when I'm speaking to you and that all in all it turns out that paying attention or noticing is more important than thinking. And so the idea is to not be trapped in thinking all the time because thinking becomes naturally moralistic, righteous and tends to take one previous concept and go to the next without noticing anything in between. Noticing being more valued than thinking means that you actually do meditate. I meditate often because I prefer sitting down quietly for 20 minutes or 30 minutes, or sometimes I go on for an hour because I like the experience of noticing and just allowing myself to experience the experience. You have to interrupt your mind in order to do that in some systematic way. So I've developed lots of ways of interrupting my mind in order to allow myself to not be driven by my mind. And I find that my mind works better when it's not oppressed with some internal pushy self-judgment. So that's that's about as much unpacking as I do there with the the practical instances are you interrupt whenever I have a paired exercise I have people do. One of them tells the other everything they should do. I should get up early tomorrow and go to school by nine o'clock. And the other person says to all of them, no. And then they say, well, I should make good grades. No. So all their shoulds and all their shouldn'ts are just looked at by someone who says no. (laughs) And and so then it's reversed so that they have to say to the other person what their shoulds are. You should get up at nine o'clock in the morning. Then you have to say no. So you have to oppose your own shoulds being dictated to you by another person. And what happens is that exercise always gets very loud in the room. There'll be 20 people doing like 10 sets of two people. And by five minutes into it, it's so loud you can hardly hear anything in that room because people are saying, no, hell no, I'm not doing it. (laughs) And they're manifesting the internal system of rebellion that they've built up, because often people don't do what they should because they're really good at resisting themselves.
1: And this creates this constant inner tension, right? Like even these people, they often appear physically tense, right? You can sense it when you meet people like that.
0: Yes, that's right.
1: Yeah. I'd like to say one more thing about, um, before I forget, because I've found this really helpful in my own life lately, in terms of... um, you know, choosing to prefer to do the things you should rather than trying to force yourself to do things, um, you know, because you should. This is just a, a technique that that uh, I was introduced to by my yoga course. So the teacher says at the beginning of the class, take a snapshot, an internal snapshot of your body right now. Okay, so we're sitting meditating whatever, before the practice begins. And you sit there and you meditate and you really kind of try to feel, okay, how am I feeling in my chest? How am I feeling in my body? Am I is my mind racing? Am I kind of agitated? Am I physically tense? Whatever. Try to get a good snapshot, right? Then we go through this, you know, amazing yoga program. And then he says, okay, take a snapshot of of, uh, how you feel now and do the same thing, right? Like notice the differences and get a really good glimpse of where you're at physically, emotionally, psychologically uh, right now. And this exercise is brilliant because then when you remember that snapshot of how good you felt doing the thing that maybe you didn't really feel like doing, you know, like, oh, I don't really want to go to the other side of town and I'd rather go to the bar and have a drink. I don't really feel like doing yoga. But when you remember that snapshot of that thing, like, I feel really good after I do that. And it's very clear. It's it's. it's I mean, I think it's, it's, it takes some practice, but eventually you can get good at taking that snapshot. When you have access to that, it's really easy to do the thing that, you because you genuinely would prefer to do the thing that's better for your life, right? Because you have a very clear... Um, Sense that it's actually better for you. I just wanted to mention that because personally, I've been finding that very helpful lately.
0: Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would think I I like, I do yoga uh, and I teach a form of yoga I call dance yoga for the insane.
1: Oh, man. Sign me up.
0: (laughs) And it's for things you do when you're driving yourself crazy. And it's done where you the yoga pose is merely a context for relaxation. So if you do the head-to-knee pose, the way I teach it, it may take you like five to seven minutes just to do your left leg, right leg, and both legs, just leaning forward. And I tell people, use your head as a six-pound dead weight. It's the best use of your head you'll ever find. (laughs) (laughs) You're leaning, trying to let your forehead get to your knee. If it's a dead weight and you're relaxing, What happens is the pose is the context within which relaxation occurs. And eventually, if you sit there long enough, your forehead will touch your knee. You may have to die and rot before your skull goes down there. (laughs) But the idea is that you allow relaxation to occur within the context of the stretch. So stretching is allowed. Because if you're trying to make stretching happen, there is a resistance that comes from forcing the stretching, which can't, won't allow it to happen. It can happen only when you allow the stretching to occur within the context. And so it may take you like a half an hour to do three yoga poses. But at the end of that half hour, if you do that little internal photograph you just talked about, you'll be just cool as a cucumber. And you'll enjoy for hours after that, this being sort of present to your experience of being in your body
1: that's a really interesting take on yoga because a lot of yoga teachers talk about determination and force yourself to do this and when you when the pose gets uncomfortable keep pushing through but you're kind of talking about something different that's interesting yeah i'd like i'd like to try it next time i'm in your neighborhood yoga for uh, what is it dance yoga for insane people (laughs) Dance
0: yoga for the insane that's great Uh, uh when I lead it, they call it
1: old man's yoga. <laughs> old, <laughs> old man's yoga. Well, let's uh, with the time we have left, I mean, I, have, as always, I have so much I want to ask you. We're not going to get to all of it, but in our emails, you were talking about connection and how so many of us are so starved for connection. I don't want to put words in your mouth at all. <clears throat> you tell me what you think of this, but is that what you see as? the main cause of suicide, whether it's, you know, it doesn't matter who it is. I mean, it's tough to generalize with something as widespread a phenomenon, as as widespread a problem as suicide is. But what do you see as the main causes there? And how does connection fit into that or the lack of connection?
0: That's probably like a year long discussion in 14 books. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think connection is critical The quality. First of all, we have to recognize that there are different kinds of connection, and that just an intellectual connection without any heart connection simulates intimacy without intimacy occurring. And so, what happens is, which most couples are, most relationships are not successful maybe 15% of relationships where people stay together are successful and the rest aren't because they simulate a connection that's not there so the idea is what it what we talk about connection is in, in the simplest and dumbest way i'm looking at you on a screen right now so we have this visual connection you're looking at me on a screen we have uh, an auditory sound connection you're listening to what i'm saying and i listen to you when you speak uh if we were present to each other we could shake hands we would have a physical connection but those simple kinds of things are the kind of connection that needs to be valued and validated like with children it's not is not what you say to them and whether you say in the right way, it's how much you hug them and hold them and take care of them when they're scared and, and guide them and like being with them and tell them stories when they go to sleep because you love doing that. So I had this book called Radical Parenting where I say basically Don't worry about parenting. They have more to teach you that you've forgotten than you have to teach them. So just touch their feet and say, all right, guru, what should I do next? (laughs) And that basically the child is re-enlivening you to the things you forgot while you were learning how to be a, a screwed up adult human being. So my prejudice is in favor of simple connection. The problem is the mind can usurp authentic connection. That's why generally romance lasts about a year and a half to two and a half years. And then the honeymoon is over for everybody. Now, the honeymoon gets renewed now and then for people who are particularly honest with each other. Because honesty is a connection, even if you're honest about what you're angry about or if you're honest about what you're sad about, or honest about what you're joyful about, about another person. That it's that quality of honesty that allows for a connection. So, we don't do a very good job. Suicide is killing many more people than war. 800,000 people in 2012, and it's every year, they just take a few years to garner all the statistics. But basically, a lot of people are killing themselves. And the question is, is it because of lack of connection? I say, yes, it's obvious we're not too good at taking care of ourselves and each other. Pretty goddamn obvious. Like outdoes yeah, most viruses, almost all sicknesses and illnesses. That basically we're not very goddamn good at taking care of ourselves and each other. Period. Yeah. What is yeah.
1: I I don't know, but you you reminded me of uh an experience I had just a few weeks ago. I was at a uh a tantra yoga retreat and there's a bunch of exercises where you uh interact physically. Nothing sexual, but you know, hugs and um you know, just caresses and things like that. And I cried because it was so clear to me how many of these people are absolutely starved for human touch, for physical contact. You could, you, it seemed like, uh, you know, I, even just thinking about it now makes me, it's like you could see on their faces and their whole body language, the way they would react. Some of these people, maybe they hadn't been touched in years. I mean, it was unbelievable to me. And these are not, you know, strange, unattractive, smelly, whatever people, you know, they're normal human beings. But it's it's yeah, it's remarkable. Yeah. Hey guys. It's Carsey Blanton. <laughs>
0: hey, there she is. Hi.
1: Well, do you you just joined us. Do you want to say a few words about how Bourdain's death impacted you and what it's got you thinking about over the past while
2: Sure. Um, I don't know. I think it it struck me as part of this sort of larger trend of feeling like uh all of our heroes are jumping ship,
1: <laughs> although
2: mm. most of them haven't done it uh, intentionally. But it still, you know, there's been a lot of drug-related deaths uh, among musicians, with Tom Petty and Prince and stuff, which feels not entirely intentional, but not entirely unintentional either. <laughs> mm. um, so I think it's to me, it's has felt like another blow to the sort of artistic uh, and human consciousness community Um, and he in particular was so politically involved that I couldn't help making that connection as well like maybe he was like all right I give up (laughs) as far as you know world politics is going but yeah human connection I think that that all makes sense too you're I, I imagine you're making the link between suicide and feelings of isolation and all of our all of our obsessive technologies.
1: While I have both of you on the line, actually, I have a question about forging connections and friendships. So a lot of people say it gets harder and harder to make friends as you get older. Um, what have each of your experiences been in terms of that? Like, like, How do you go about forging connections with people? Um, Dr. Blanton, if you want to jump off first.
0: Well, I've got a stacked deck because I'm a therapist and I run groups and I do seminars and stuff. And people read my books and come to me, and I have often say, "I wish people would leave me the hell alone." (laughs) (laughs) So, 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 I, in some ways, have more connections. I have more people that want to connect with me than I want to connect with often, and that's partly because of my sort of um, judgmental mind interfering with me just being open and responsive to people because I get this idea that I should be able to play golf today instead
1: <laughs> <laughs> instead you're Skyping with me <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: but I love this conversation that we've had so far and I love Carsi, everything she says and so oh. I'm having a good time and I feel connected to you all even though I'm seeing you on the screen oh. and I I can only see Carsey's picture on the screen, I can't even see Carsey. But I, I, I think that I'm lucky because I have a lot of connections because a lot of people want to connect with me. And so I my disconnection comes from my inattentiveness. And There, I see Carsey now, hi. <laughs> um, so what I imagine is that for me, It's a stacked deck, and I I think it probably is for Carsey, too, because she's a performer, and a whole lot of people want to connect with her. And you are, too, in some way. Our disconnect would have to be the way Anthony Bourdain's may have been, which is he felt obligated to be the one who exemplified the life that he lived and gave people permission to not be so hard on themselves, so he was too hard on himself in doing that
1: yeah what about yeah. you Percy have you have you found it harder to make friends as you get older?
2: I have and I also I also find it a little bit harder to make friends in the context of like of like not that I'm famous but the sort of semi celebrity that I have by traveling around and playing music for people um, and I wonder Dad, if you relate to this that for me it, it's hard to forge friendships that start with the feeling of Sort of uneven admiration, mm. um, yes. and I wonder if that was part of Anthony Bourdain's isolation too. Like, I think celebrity is is a part of this conversation that doesn't often come up. That like, when we're when we're asking people to create a public persona that everybody likes, that can itself be very isolating because it makes it harder to connect with real intimacy where you're not acting as a persona but as your true fucked up self.
1: and i i wonder about this a lot like when you know when you think of like extremely famous extremely successful extremely wealthy particularly extremely wealthy people which i guess those things often go together but people i mean it must be exhausting and really tough when you feel like you're meeting people all the time and let's be honest 95 percent of those people want something from you or as as you say, Carsey, they're almost in awe of you. You know, they don't they don't see the real you. They they see the the celebrity. You know that must like how do you how do you stay sane? You know, do you just like just you know hoard your high school friends forever, like the people who knew you before you were famous? So that that's got to be exhausting. I can't I can't imagine.
0: I do. Yeah. have friends that keep because they're old. Yeah. 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 <laughs>
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
2: Same. And I would say my closest friends are friends I've had since I was a teenager or friends that I work with. I think the way the only way I've successfully made really close friendships as an adult are by working with other people over a long period of time where we're like peers and collaborators. Um, and I think that's one reason it's harder to make friends as an adult is because friendship isn't actually just based on mutual liking it's based on uh collaboration or working together
1: yeah yeah if you give people a shared mission it definitely brings them together i've noticed that in my own life as well it's a you forge a very different and more um yeah more sort of mutually important connection if you actually have some kind of shared project or mission you're working on for sure i agree um i'd like to talk about something and i'd, I'd pose this question to to each of you this is something that i have struggled with this is something i'm kind of struggling with now and with in light of anthony bourdain checking out um it's kind of been on my mind a lot more if you have a friend who it seems to be the case that they're pretty depressed they're in a dark place particularly for men i think I, this is i i find it difficult to to sort of um approach that um that very delicate topic, you know, cause you don't want to go up to someone and say, Hey, you know, are you thinking about killing yourself or something like that? Certainly. But do you have any thoughts on, uh, and you can go first, Dr. Blanton, do you have any thoughts on how to help or, or be there for a friend who seems to be in a dark place, but maybe they're not saying anything about it.
0: I don't have any like secret formula or anything. I just basically when I feel sorry for someone being sad, I say, I'm sorry, you're so sad about that. You seem to be sad about that. Uh, Or some question like what happened there? Like that some simple question like that, uh, encourage them to lay it on me let me know, share it, say it out loud. I don't, I usually feel helpless. When people lose a loved one, they get very, very sad. And that's what happens when you lose a loved one. There's not anything I can do about it. My brother died three months ago. I was sad, still am some with it, and so were his boys. And I just feel basically, I'm sorry that you're sad. And I put my arm around them or connect with them or we cry together. And that's about it. You share that. There is no power of like getting over it because they, you can't get over it, you go through it, and that's the way the way it works is that you have the experience until you don't have the experience anymore. If you resist it and try to do another experience instead, it just makes it stay there longer. So I say that often to people who are sad, to go ahead and be sad and give themselves permission to, to be depressed. And like I say, I often say I try to give an upgrade. I say, Oh, that's nothing. You should be in despair about this and give them three or four other things a whole hell of a lot more depressed about. Okay. So by the end of the time I finish talking, they're still depressed, but about something worse <laughs> <laughs> than what they were depressed about before. Yeah. And that usually looks pretty good. <laughs>
2: That's a part of the landmark forum I always remember is when they say, if you have a problem, what you need is a bigger problem.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's
2: like oh. When I did the forum, Zachary, I don't know if you know about the forum. We could talk about that in a second. But I did the forum as a teenager, and my the leader uh, was the guy who started The Hunger Project. And he said he started The Hunger Project because he was going through a divorce, and he realized he needed a bigger problem, so he chose world hunger. <laughs>
1: That's a, that's a decent problem.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> Car- I, wonder then why
2: we, I wonder then why we are all are still so concerned with our own petty problems while the world is going to fascism. You know, you'd think we'd be more distracted.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's a good question. I don't have an answer. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a good question. Okay, so next podcast we all tackle fascism. How's that?
2: Great. <laughs> well, there
0: is um, yeah. an absolutely great book called Homo Deus that I've just started yes. reading. Oh yeah. This guy Harari, who's a historian from Israel, who wrote
1: uh, Sapiens. Sapiens,
0: yeah, and he's now written oh. a new book called Homo Deus. And one of the things that I really like about this book is he has that, that perspective. I was talking about the John Brown song. I just told him the John Brown song about, Father, forgive us for what we must do. You forgive us, and we'll forgive you. We'll forgive each other till we birth turn blue, and then we'll whistle and go fishing in heaven. I told him that yep. was the key, <laughs> is that we have to forgive God and we had to forgive fascists. You know, it's like if, if we have to, you know, we have to forgive Donald Trump. That's just such an oh, affront to me. I'd say to kill oh. the son of a... <laughs> I know.
2: Can't we just kill him? I think it would work just as well. <laughs> and be faster. <laughs> I'm not touching
1: any of those comments with a 10 foot pole. You guys are on your own at this point.
2: <laughs> well, you're not in the U.S. I'm lucky. Yeah, you I'm I a long way away. Yeah
1: yeah <laughs> yeah I'm a long way away. Yeah
2: well you know I was just thinking about for some reason I came across the five stages of grief and I realized that we've been going like most of the people I know have been going through the five stages of grief since the November election and I think now we're in depression. I think a lot of people have gone through you know bargaining and whatever the other ones are and now there's a there is a widespread depression that I'm seeing at this wow. moment. I think a lot of it has to do with getting over our grief about what we thought our country was. <laughs> yeah. And that having yeah. died.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you'll really like Homo Deus, too. Really, you'll like it. Yeah. yeah.
1: What's What's the antidote to Trump depression? Because, like, for me, I mean, when you look at the, the voter turnout le- levels and stuff, I don't have a ton of sympathy for people who stayed home on you know last or November 2016 because a lot of them did. Um, what, what's yeah. the antidote to that? Just civic engagement or, or more voting or what?
2: Oh, I wish I knew. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I think it's revolution. I think that's the antidote. But I don't know how to actually do it. I think that's what we're all trying to figure out. <laughs> right. yeah. We're not going to feel better until we actually overthrow the government. <laughs> now that we've realized it's totally rotten. You know what I mean? Like, at least for me, I think Trump... The election of Trump was the nail in the coffin of my belief in American-style capitalist democracy. Because yeah, he was yeah. such a ridiculous candidate <laughs> that it was like, it shouldn't have been possible to elect him if what we had was democracy. And what we really have is this sort of, you know... It's, it's like democracy is just one of our projects of of the people who are actually in charge of the country, which is the very wealthy. And so, you know, the fact that they gave us two candidates that nobody really liked or wanted to vote for wasn't an accident. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They don't want us to have real choices, and so we don't, you know. So I feel like to me it's like even focusing on Trump is a little bit of a misdirection. The real Uh, problem is that we've gotten ourselves into a really big pickle that we now have to get ourselves out of.
1: (laughs) Yeah, If no. you get
2: rid of Trump, there's just an after him, you know?
1: <laughs> a- absolutely. Like I, I, so I'm not American. I, you know, I don't really have a dog in this fight so much, other than the fact that you know, I'm Canadian, we're neighbors, and you guys have nuclear weapons and all the rest. But um, the one thing about Trump is, is that, in some sense, you could look at this as just the biggest opportunity, perhaps in American history just about, for invigorated civic engagement. Um, you you know what I mean? Because it's so glaring. There's this system is broken. My God, you know, like what more evidence do you need? If this doesn't wake people up, what the hell will, you know, this is a massive opportunity. So, I mean, again, I'm not American. I'm not, you know, whatever. But I see, you know, I feel like if I was American, there would be a real, um, sense of possibility perhaps. But maybe this is just, uh, you know, my optimism, you know, half a world away. So I, I don't know.
2: No, I think you're right. And I think one thing that's that keeps me going, (laughs) even in this sort of depression about the state of the world is, is I'm sort of at the oldest end of the millennial generation. And my younger brother Elijah is more in the middle, he's eight years younger than me. And his friends are so much smarter than my friends. You know what I mean? His like he's he's turned our whole family into socialists, first of all, just by giving us books and having conversations with us and trying to educate us and all of his friends are basically socialists and it's a huge movement. There's something like thirty percent of millennials identify as socialists right now. And I think that is not an accident. It's a it's a combination of having come of age during a depression and then seeing the election of this monster where everybody's like, Alright, then fuck this shit. Like <laughs> they're not they're not going to take any more of it, <laughs> even right. if we are, and like the older generation is, you know?
1: <laughs> it's very interesting. It'll be interesting to see the leaders that come out of this, that emerge from this generation, you know, as, as you say. I think, yeah, that's an interesting, interesting point. Before I let you both go, Dr. Blanton, I wanted to get to this, and, and as long as we're talking politics, in an email, you wrote a little bit about your speculation about what might have happened at the Camp David Summit in 1978 and how that relates to radical honesty. I found that really interesting. Do you want to just speak about that for a minute?
0: Well, uh, under Jimmy Carter, there were a whole bunch of people that did T groups in Washington, D.C., and people that had been trained in gestalt therapy by a lot of therapists that were traveling around the country in a desolate institute. And I, was, and I knew a lot of people that were doing group work. And there was this big secret thing at Camp David for two days at the beginning of this twelve-day meeting at Camp David, where the Israelis and the Palestinians were were meeting to make an accord for peace. Hmm. And the, the it was a very big secret, but friends of mine told me that we began the meeting by saying, "This is called the the peace accord," but for the next two days, we don't want anyone mentioning peace. Wow. We, we want you to say exactly what these other people did to your people,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: why you hate them, mm-hmm. and exactly what you'd like to do. And they said, okay, and they did. You know, you killed my uncle, you killed my brother. If I get a chance, I'm going to kill you, you son of a bitch. And Basically, they could do nothing with that for two days. They said they couldn't, they wouldn't let them hit each other or fight or kill each other. Hmm. But they also couldn't talk about fucking peace. Hmm. (laughs) So they spent two days. And then they had 10 days of meetings and they came up with what was called the Peace Accord, which is the longest lasting accord between Israel and Palestine. And Sadat and Begin both got the nobel peace prize for
1: that so and to what extent is that like so is that proven that that that, that's how they began those first two days
0: but it was was a part of the conditions was that no one would ever be able to know what they said to each other but my friend said
1: and you have a hunch you have a hunch it involved a lot of very angry radical honesty
0: What happened is that you are a low-life son of a bitch and you killed my uncle But came after two days. You were my brother and you killed my uncle. Hmm.
1: Interesting. Because, I mean, it it makes so much sense, and I'm sure this is obvious to you, but even when someone's really angry with you, it's so much better when they're very honest about it, even if it hurts, because it kind of lets you relax a bit because now you don't have to play the guessing game. What are they pissed off about? What are they thinking you know, whatever. They just lay it on the line. It kind of, even though it's unpleasant.
0: Then, it lets them relax see, because it's out there. You know, it's not something you're being politely told about. Yeah. And the idea that we just go ahead and fight, but we don't kill each other, it's so much better than war. <laughs> we yeah. can do such a better job of taking care of ourselves and each other. Yeah. In relation to ourselves and each other. And the idea is that That The honesty of that is a connection Even though it doesn't look like much of a connection. I hate your goddamn guts is a connection And this is what I hate you for this is what you did and Then you appreciate them eventually for telling you what they hate you for
1: Yeah, and I'll take I'll take that guy over the guy who's nice to my face and talk shit behind my back Every day of the week, yeah. right? It's yeah, obviously, yeah, yeah. Well, do you, do you, do either of you have anything more you'd like to to talk about or add?
0: Well, my little P.S. to that is that all of the agreed upon stuff in the news media today for the last year and a half of all the Trump dump has been that our security depends on secrecy.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: All of my work is that secrecy is the most poisonous thing to security that there is. Mm -hmm. That keeping secrets doesn't provide security, that security is undermined by secrecy. Yet the CIA and the FBI and the common agreement of Republicans and Democrats and everything is that we have to be able to keep our secrets. And I just say it's all bullshit. It's all bullshit. That, I, you know, supposedly there's a secret about the hydrogen bomb. They 300 people going to make a goddamn hydrogen bomb all over the world. The secrecy didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't work. And mostly it's to hide the bullshit that people got by with that they don't want other people to find out. So one of our revolutionary things is going to be to fuck secrecy. We just have everybody take a goddamn lie detector test and ask them everything.
1: there's a t-shirt fuck secrecy
0: (laughs) there it is good yeah
2: (laughs) Yeah. well i had a i had a little insight after bourdain died about how one of the ways to counter fascism is to be the the kind of artist that he was that Like, fascism, part of the fascist ideology is that the world will be improved if people are more the same. So if we have people separated and if you're the same, you get in your group of the same people, you don't go into the other group of different people. So it's like, it's segregation. And I think what Bourdain was proving all the time is, is humans are incredibly diverse, and that's one of our strengths, and that one of the ways to live a good life is to put yourself in situations with people who aren't the same as you. So I feel like that's a that's a natural counter to the fascist ideology. And like if you watch a couple episodes of his show, it makes you a little bit less fascist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I found that very inspiring as an artist, that part of the job is you have to remind people that diversity is important and good and and being with people who are different from you is a strength.
1: That's beautiful. Yeah, that's very well put. And I'm, I'm reminded of, um, Carsey, have you seen that picture of Woody Guthrie with the guitar? He, he wrote on it, this, <laughs> this machine kills fascists.
2: Yep. Yeah, he's right. <laughs> a, I do. Yeah, yep, that's right.
1: Yeah, he was right. Good job. What a beautiful note to close on. Um, Dr. Blanton and Carsey Blanton, thank you both very much. You each have an open invitation for the podcast. Blantons are always welcome here. Thank you so much, both of you guys, for joining me today. Okay. <laughs> Bye, Zachary. Thank you so much for listening, my friends. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And as always, please go to humansinlove.com to find the show notes and links to Brad's work, links to Carsey's work, links to everything we talked about in today's episode. Please go to humansinlove.com. This is already a pretty long episode, so I will leave you now. But before I let you go, I will remind you and mostly remind myself. I, I feel like when I say this at the end of each episode, I'm primarily reminding myself, but remember that life is short, so let's all be kind to each other. Let's forge better connections with each other. Let's enjoy each other a little more. Thank you for listening, my friends. I will talk to you very soon.